and welcome to In Conversation with Lucy Zellich. From the outside looking in, Dr Bridie O'Donnell has led the most fascinating life. She's a medical practitioner, a rower, an ironwoman, a record-breaking cyclist, a pioneer in commentary, an author and the inaugural director of the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation in Victoria. But the road to success has been paved with setbacks, humiliation, abuse and deprivation, all in pursuit of what she describes as the extraordinary. Here, Bridie reflects on her many lives, why gender equality and diversity are so important to her, plus more. Bridie, thank you so much for stopping by to chat to us here at SBS. We're so excited that you are our inaugural guest as part of our podcast series. It's such a delight to be able to get to know you, to hear about your stories. But before we get to all of that, tell me, how is life in Melbourne going? Because you guys have been put through the ringer and it's such an emotional roller coaster to have to deal with all of this. You're right. I think it's been hard to go back and forth, but I also... Maybe the word resilience is a little overused sometimes, but I actually feel like we're getting a lot better at coping with uncertainty. I've been super lucky because I have a job. I know lots of people have had um, job uncertainty and I've also had good health, you know, as much as I like to. So I'm very, very fortunate, but it's, God, it's been a really tricky last 12 months. You mentioned, of course, you still being able to keep your job, but you bloody made me nervous the other day when you put up that post on Instagram saying that you had to clean out your office and after 344 days oh. <laughs> you know, of going through the pandemic. But I fortunately since learned that it was because you still have to continue to work from home. But that really upset you. Why? Well, I was returning to an office um, of a job that I, I'm, I'm on a secondment. I'm doing a different role to do with COVID and events, which has been amazing. So someone else will be acting in my job and that was the office I was cleaning out. So I was going back to a place where we had established the first ever office for women in sport and recreation in this country, in this state. And I'd been the inaugural director. I was the inaugural director. And there was all this stuff in there, you know, like mementos and thank yous and um, footy balls on the wall and the, my Matilda's jersey that's been signed and all of these wonderful reminders of the work that um, our team has done with teams, with leagues, with small organisations in country and regional VIC, with major organisations, with board quotas, like we have achieved a lot of things. And I think um, to go in there and clean out my desk so that someone else could move in just was a bit of a hard change period for me. And, and it's been an exhausting week. So I think I just felt overwhelmed. Being made that inaugural director, because you've done some tremendous work within the Victorian state government, the 402020 uh, introduction, I think, was hugely important in which for people that don't know, of course, was to be able to ensure that boards and, and, and positions, key positions, were occupied by at least 40% of women. Um, I just think that that is such an important body of work that you've completed in that space, because it's something that obviously we're all talking about when it comes to gender equality. But there are a lot of critics out there when they say that quotas are, are kind of mocking these positions and that they should be earned on merit. Why was this body of work so important for you? Well, firstly, merit stands for mates elevated regardless of intellect or talent. <laughs> it means that historically, particularly in sport or in, in sectors where there's a lot of volunteers, we hire the people we like, we tap on the shoulder the people we know, regardless of gender, but generally it's been um, you know older men who are white, Christian, straight, you know, they've been a pretty narrow pool demographically speaking. So people tap the person they know because oh, it's okay, Frank knows what he's doing, he used to play the game, he's kicked the ball, he's done the thing, he'll know the lingo. So what you end up doing is just excluding people who sound, look or feel different. And a board quota is absolutely to throw that out the window and to say, actually, we have to actively seek to work with and collaborate with people who have different ideas, who are different ages from us, different genders, who are going to propose a different solution and maybe sometimes cause disagreement. But if that's done respectfully and professionally, the, the whole team or the organisation or the cricket club or whatever it is will improve. Because having eight blokes sitting around a table 
as a board, that's not diverse. That's not diverse thinking. Um, it's generally survival. And what we saw last year with COVID and the impact on community sporting in particular was so many sporting organisations were able, they were in crisis and then they started to think, okay, what could we do better that we haven't been doing well enough? What have we not been focusing on? Maybe it's about driving participation of girls. Maybe it's around looking at programs for people with disability. Maybe it's wondering why aren't there any Aboriginal people playing our code or our sport? You know, so addressing where those gaps were, I think, happened a fair bit last year. And I think that there's sometimes resistance um, to quotas by women, particularly those who are already in a position of leadership. And they'll often say to me, I got here the right way. Mm -hmm. And I think... Maybe, but also maybe you were just tapped on the shoulder because you were a very wealthy or connected or well-educated person the way a lot of the men who were tapped on the shoulder were. So is that the right way? Is that how we want people to be given opportunities? Maybe. But also what about free advertisement on Facebook saying we are looking for a lawyer to join our board? We'd like a woman. We'd prefer her to have had some experience in X, Y, Z. We know that when women are tapped on the shoulder specifically and said these are the expectations, this is why we want you, we're trying to fill a quota but we need someone who's got skills in you know, marketing or driving participation and membership then that woman, who's frequently a parent who works as well, she's more inclined to give up her spare time to be on a committee than if you just said, oh, we just need a woman, any woman will do. I think it's so important particularly because, you know, we're all in a position in, in across several sporting bodies where we're all crying out for government funding, but where your situation in the Victorian government in this particular case is unique is that you have to implement this in order to receive this particular stream of funding. What was the reaction like initially from these organisations when this was put out to them? There was understandably pushback because I think historically we haven't always um, had a really good lever in which to ask sporting organisations or any funded organisation to kind of do the right thing, to, mm. to do the things that we need of them, or to sometimes for them to mirror what community expectations are. So by, by giving them lead time, by working really closely with them, by showcasing the ones that were doing great, like, hey, how great is this organisation? How great is that sport? Gee, they're really motivated. That elevates the competitive juices of some of the smaller organisations or the ones who are a little slow. Then what I found was, and I learned a lot through this as well, that I started meeting with the CEOs or the chairs of, of these 112 organisations and the ones that were a little resistant or slower, you found out it was actually because they didn't know how to go about this. They'll say, and these are absolutely true stories, they would say, we had a woman on the board once, she stayed three months and she didn't like it and left. And you think, okay... Did you ask yourselves why that might have been? Was she the right person? Did she get given the right brief on what was required? You know, like all of those things. And it made us all realise that so many sporting organisations across this country are so reliant on the generosity of volunteers and they don't have a highly paid, skilled person who's in recruitment or, you know, that they're underfunded, as you exactly as you said, and they're trying to do their best and just deliver soccer or deliver netball or whatever – and then when this problem comes along, an HR problem or a governance and administrative problem to solve, it feels a bit hard. So working with them was key and providing them support and saying, we want you to get there. This isn't about the stick, it's about the carrot. And how can we help you? And flagging some of those that needed a lot more support, governance or, or recruitment or advertising or whatever it was. And it's pretty amazing. Also, given their volunteer organisations, there's flux. You know, people leave boards. That's going to change the quota or the percentage. But as long as they've got their plan on how they're going to recruit and a pathway, Tennis Victoria is a great example of an organisation that went through a lot of change. They already mm. had women on their board when we started, but they now have a waiting list. There's really highly qualified men and women saying, please, can I be on that board? We hear the same with um, a Richmond Football Club. They have an entire nominations process. So it's really transparent. And I believe Kate Palmer was recently just appointed to the board of Richmond Football Club. Highly capable, experienced um, sports administrator and woman in governance. But you can imagine Richmond would have sat around thinking, okay, uh, who do we who do we need? Who do we? What skills might we be lacking? So that's all we're really asking is for people to reflect on how well their organisation's working and what they could do better. How do we spread the gospel? How do we get other states and territories to get behind this and have this mandated across the country? 
Well, I think they have different needs and they might have had a different agenda with whichever state government um, or political party was in power. Adelaide, South Australia already has a 40-40-20. Ours is 40 minimum. Uh, we know New Zealand um, came to us to ask a lot of advice on how we'd implemented and they were really motivated over the last 12 months. And New South Wales have a strategy around her sport, her way. So those states and, juris- and territories are looking at the way they can do things. But they also have, I mean, we are in a unique situation in that we have one of the smaller surface areas and one of the larger populations. So a high density and a lot of spread. I mean, I think I said 112 organisations or so. That that goes from AFL Victoria and tennis and netball and cricket, but also way down to rifle shooting and uh, calisthenics and organisations that um, are, have high participation, but don't necessarily have high profile. And so I think we just had to work with what we were doing and provide support or information to other jurisdictions if they wanted it. You know, these things are both um, aligning with all manner of things that happen socially and culturally, like the Me Too movement. I mean, a lot of these things were happening external to government that influenced the way people thought about gender equality and about a voice for all people. Um, We've had a the Uluru Statement from the Heart was obviously in 2017. We're still talking about the best way to ensure Aboriginal people in Australia have a voice. So all of these things are social issues that are happening in the background or, you know, in the foreground, but slightly adjacent to where government policy might be looking at sport. So we were trying to think, how can we ensure we're, we're aligning, we're amplifying those messages and doing our best in this state? Why is gender equality and diversity particularly important to you, Bridie O'Donnell? I think because I grew up firstly with parents um, that cared about equality and doing your best and having a fair go in in the true sense of the word. My dad's a primary school teacher. My mother was a social worker who then went on to work in different parts of state government in Queensland. And they were people of community service. You know, that was their job was to um, – uh, my dad ran for local council as well. I remember when we were a kid, they, they were all about, you know, doing your best, making sure everyone got, a, got the same opportunities. We realised how privileged we were that we had parents who cared about what loved us and housed and clothed us, but also that cared about education. That's a, that's a real privilege to have a focus on secondary and tertiary education. So I think, and then I went into med school and medicine is, you know, it's about knowledge and information, but it's about advocacy, informing people and then helping them be healthier. So I think my whole mindset has been, um, which I know is probably deeply irritating to people who are around me sometimes, but like, (laughs) how can we, what's process improvement? How can we do this better? How can I make you healthier? How could I help you lose weight? Or how could I make this policy work for more people? so that we're getting the most for our money or our exercise or our health and well-being. I think that's where I've come from. So when and then to be personally to experience a terrible lack of equality when I was a professional road cyclist. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to look across at other athletes of different genders and think, right, so if I was born a boy, I could be earning a salary and racing the Tour de France, but because for the last 40 years no one's given a crap about a women's pro peloton and therefore sponsors don't invest and therefore teams don't get the budget and therefore women riders don't do it. You know, the whole cycle of sponsorship and investment has meant that here here we are, we still have women riding for their lives on a no wage or a minimum wage and, and with a much shorter pathway to the top than as in, you know, the gap between nothing and the best paid women in the world is very different from the gap to, from Neo Pro Man to Peter Sagan. Mm. And so I think that, and that's even aside from the brutal nature of professional cycling and what it's like to be a woman in a pro cycling team. Um, I can't speak for all other writers, but I wrote about this in my book. It's There's abuse everywhere, financial abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, um, just neglect, inadequate nutrition, uh, poor management. And you put up with all of those things, though, because you can't ride Worlds or Olympics or aim to get qualified as selected unless you're there you can't it's not like triathlon you can't just go and do hawaii or race ironman races and make a living and be a great athlete you have to be part of a system and for many of us that system was broken i was reading actually an article uh, from 2015 in which you spoke about the horrible abuse and the, the accounts of sexual abuse and stories that you'd heard of but the personal abuse that you're referring to there where you were denied food where you had to make your own way home after not completing the stage at the Giro d'Italia in the right time um, and, and just feeling humiliated by all of that 
And you said something really important too in which someone had explained to you that, well, at least you've got your medical career to fall back on. And you said, well, no one says that kind of stuff to Cadell Evans. Can you talk about what that period in your life was like and just how challenging it was and why you persisted with it? Because from the outside looking in, I mean, we see how you are this truly impressive individual. You've achieved so much in the sporting world, in the medical world. You're an author. You're a pioneer in the commentary space. You've done so much. But why was it cycling that you settled on when it was such a horrible, horrible environment to be in? Well, I think I have a real, I had and have, I still have a desire, like a real unshakable desire to be exceptional. Like throughout my rowing and Ironman um, competition times, I wanted to win Hawaii or I wanted to go to the Olympics. I didn't just want to row or do Ironman. I really wanted to be the best. And so the similar feelings were there when I was riding a bike. I think the conflict or the terrible paradox for a lot of women is they do have another career. They've been educated or they had a job and they've given that up, particularly Australian New Zealand women, and they've had to travel over to the other side of the world. So you've you literally and physically relocated yourself and you can't earn any money over there and you can't really – you might be able to do a bit of online study, but you're really fully committed. And so you want to be fully committed. You, you, you've given up your job or your relationship or all these other manner of things and the support of your parents to go do that thing. And the world is saying, that must be so great, living in Italy, oh, amazing. And you're thinking, actually, no, the reality of it is very different from people's imagined uh, sort of expectations of living in Europe and being a bike rider. And so I think part of it is pride. You don't want to whinge about, oh, this is garbage, because people say, well, come home then. If it's so bad, don't do it anymore. And I thought, no, no, I'm trying to stick at it. I'm trying to go to Olympics. I'm trying to go to world championships. So I felt like I had to endure the rubbish to get to the outcome. But I also think that I was in a difficult position. If I was a 19-year-old with no other job options or whatever, I probably, I don't know, I could have given up more quickly, but I also could have tolerated it for much longer than I would have liked I was in a weird interim period where I was too old. I kept, constantly would not get contracts because of my age. And I, despite being a good athlete, and so I was kind of weighing up every season. I'd come home, I'd earn money as an assistant um, orthopedic surgeon. Then I'd go back overseas thinking, this will be the year. This is a course at Worlds. Like in 2011, I thought, yeah, Denmark is a course that suits me. I'll get selected. And then to be told, now nah, we just don't think we will halfway through the season, regardless of your results. I guess it's like anyone who's an elite athlete knows this. You're hanging on this is sort of tantalising carrot being you know dangled in front of you, and you just think all I need is one more good race. All I need is this. Everything is contingent on performance, and yet when your mindset or your physical um, ability is being compromised, you're just never going to be amazing. So you, I worked that out, and I got to a point where I was at the end of 2012, where I couldn't get another pro contract in Europe because I think, as I said, the at that time, the UCI had an age average law for women's teams that didn't exist for men's teams. So, you know, Jens Watt can keep riding at 41, but no one's going to offer me a contract at that age. So I was raced in the US in 212, and I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to sleep in bunk beds or inflatable mattresses that have gone down by the time you wake up in the morning. Fine if you're sharing a bed with a teammate who's skinny because she gets really great sleep, but your ass is on the ground. <laughs> and just I just thought, I think I'd like to earn a living again. I'd like to, you know, not queue for the bathroom in the morning after training. I was, I was feeling too old, I guess, you know, existentially speaking. Um, but I know a lot of women who I started racing with who are still racing, some of whom have had extraordinary careers and some have just kind of gone along with no disrespect to their um, racing performances, they haven't necessarily kind of catapulted themselves up, but they've also been obviously been able to be in a good enough situation or tolerated the rubbish or remove themselves from that and still want to be a pro bike rider. What do you think that particular personality trait speaks to? Does it speak to the way you were brought up? I mean, you have to have this specific set of drive to be able to persist through moments like this and to keep chasing that and saying to yourself, okay, one more, one more. Um, Because, you know, when I started to peel back the surface of your upbringing as well, you grew up so beautifully off the grid in the Obi-Obi Valley on your family's property. Um, You know, you didn't have any electricity or television. You went to school where the teachers were parents you just had such an innocent, beautiful upbringing, which you'd think, and, and you also admitted, you said, you know, I wasn't an athlete at all, but it wouldn't, and, and, and I mean no disrespect, but it wouldn't lend 
to, to giving someone the kind of traits that you have now, if I could say that. So where do you think you can attribute your personality traits to? I'm not sure because I have one sister and she and I are quite different in our approaches to things. So, um, I mean, I didn't want for anything, but I just am so like uh, desperate to be extraordinary and, and be the best at everything. And where sometimes what I've modified though over the last few years is sometimes being the best is doing your best today, like coping in a really stressful situation or working and particularly the last 12 months um, working from home but in a really um, difficult environment where we're working for government to try and support different parts of the sector on understanding what's happening. So I feel like um, doing my best or being my best is sometimes just like getting back to the people that are having that are likely to be a hard conversation, keep showing up every day to things that are often hard, keep getting feedback from a boss or a manager who's saying you need to do this better next time. Like actually keeping on showing up when you'd rather hide is where I think daily courage comes from. And I feel like that's even harder for me than showing up to the Giro when I knew it wasn't going to win every day. But maybe that shaped a lot of this because when you can endure hardship, you can like and be brave, you can do anything because you know it will never last, the terribleness and the hardship, but also you know that you look back and think, holy crap, I have done some good things, but you are also constantly looking forward of like, what do I keep needing to do? So you're never really resting, which is a bit tiring. <laughs> I, I feel tired now that I say it like that. I might need to reset that answer. <laughs> Oh, gee, you must be exhausted when you put it in that way. Um, I have to ask you, though, have there ever been moments in your life where you have been tested and you've been pushed to the brink and you've almost said to yourself, I, I can't do this anymore? What moments have have been there for you that have represented situations like that? Oh, there are hundreds of those. And I'm a big fan of quitting. Like, I think that more people need to really evaluate and think, why am I doing this? Does it make me happy? Am I good? It looked like that Japanese ikigai. Like, is what I'm doing good for the world? Do I get paid to do it? Do I love it? And am I good at it? I can't remember if they're the four. But you, you, there were, that's why I stopped rowing. I was a good rower, but I was never going to be an Olympic gold medalist for all manner of reasons. So I stopped rowing. I didn't just keep doing it for 10 years thinking I'm just going to be there or thereabouts. My goal was to be Kim Crow. I clearly don't look like her. I don't have the parent. I didn't pick the right parents. I didn't pick the right age to start doing the sport. Um, it's not my fault, but I also elected to not do it anymore. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm divorced. Anyone who's ever been divorced is one of the hardest things you ever choose to do. But you've also made a conscious choice to leave something or maybe your partner has as well. So action is better than indecision and being unhappy. And action that's difficult is always better than a regret and getting to the end of a life where you think, if only I'd started that small business or if only I'd had a kid or if only I'd... I will hopefully, touch wood, never be like that because when there are things that I really want to do or things I really want to stop doing, I do those things. You know, And I worked a lot in intensive care and worked a lot with death and have been around a lot of people who've died, people who I know, but more people who I don't know. And it's absolutely true. No one ever dies and is dying and says, I wish I'd had more clients. I wish I'd worked hard. I wish I had four cars instead of three. They always say, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. I wish I'd done the things I was afraid to do. And um, I wish I'd been more grateful for the things in my life that were that brought me joy. Being exposed to death is hard. I mean, I've, I've got friends, in fact, my daughter's godfather is actually a nurse. And he, for all of his dryness and his sarcasm, I, I love him so dearly. There is an element to him which it almost sounds a bit morbid to say, but that has died. Um, he seems very closed off to a lot of things in the world, but I don't get that sense about you. There is still this sense of vulnerability, of relativity, where people can relate to you, where they feel that warmth and authenticity. How have you managed to retain that? I think I like people laughing at my jokes, so I try to be humorous at all times. Um, but also I couldn't keep working in ICU. I, I was terribly moved by the death of people. And more importantly, less, if, if I can say this, more by the impact of it would have on a family. So the very first time I had to tell a family that their next of kin, their father, husband, etc., was going to die, it was terrible. I, I totally sucked at it. I was 24 years old. No one gave me any type of proper education on how to go into a room of people and say, basically, this guy is riddled with cancer and it's all terrible. 
And um, look, it's similar, I'm sure, for Victoria Police and people who have to go to knock on doors and say someone has, a terrible thing has happened. It absolutely breaks your heart. I cried through the whole thing, which I knew was just super unprofessional, but I felt devastated on their behalf. And I kept thinking to myself while I was talking to them, what would I want someone to say to me if this was my dad or my husband or my you know, loved one? So I do think that it must be really challenging for people who are dealing with this a lot. And I know I've got close friends who work in special forces and who have seen mass death and many of them are irrevocably changed. They have a, a reset on what's important and what's not that can make it very hard for them to adjust to intimacy or to the needs of others because they think, you know what, compared to seeing a mass grave in Rwanda, this isn't that big a deal. And one of the things I think is really challenging, particularly for doctors or people who've experienced death or, or really difficult hardship is you need to not lose that relativity because the person you're sitting opposite who has a problem has not seen a mass grave of people in Rwanda or has not seen witness genocide or um, tried to resuscitate a person in a motor vehicle accident who's died in front of them, which has happened to me. That's a terrible thing. You try to manage it and cope with it and get help and support to do so. But the person who's lost their job or had a boyfriend who's broken up with them is probably feeling equally de- you know, devastated. And for me, I'm constantly reminded, and you know, we, we think of this a lot, that everyone is going through their own shit. Some mm. people's shit is way worse and monumental, like they're trying to be the prime minister of a country or they're trying to be um, they're trying they're in labor having a baby, and other people have like someone's not texting them back. Mm-hmm. It let's not I think it's really important to not devalue what moves people. But you also, I think, as a leader, particularly if you're a manager of many people in a team, or you're a leader on a on on the road in a cycling team is you you need to galvanize everyone who is all coming to this particular task with very different levels of stress or motivation or care factor. And you talked about coronavirus and the impact. I've been leading a team of people of around 20 people for the last year. Some of them are coping with working from home and uncertainty very differently from others. Some people's psychological stress has been awful, and some have said, "That's oh, no big deal. I'm a single guy. I work from home. I've got a dog." It's cool. So I think the more empathy we can have for others and imagine, gosh, what would it be like to be Lucy? That's going to be hard. Or what's going to be like to be Christoph? How's that going to be? So that you can appreciate then if they're a bit short with you or they're a bit frustrated or there's something that you might interpret, maybe it's just them. Maybe they are having a bad day and it's not, it's not all about you. Mm. I think that helps as well. What inspired you to pursue medicine? Because you're, you know, highly acclaimed in your field. You graduated from Melbourne University as your valedictorian, um, very skilled in this area. You've worked in, in multiple different areas also within the field too, an assistant to an orthopaedic surgeon in, in the intensive care unit. You've worked with breast cancer patients as well. You love being able to combine your love of sport and, and, and intertwine that within your medical field. But what really was it that drew you to that industry? Um, I think fashion would have been the, the real answer. But I have to correct you, I was valedictorian but of Queensland University and I oh, suspect apologies. that year they gave it to the person who they thought would give the best speech. So I, I was definitely not the <laughs> smartest in my class. I think they couldn't rally someone else who was really clever to do it. But I think um, when I was a little kid I walked through hospitals and my grandma was sick and I saw all these nurses with like a little cardigans buttoned up around their neck but with their arms outside the sleeves and I thought yeah how good does that look no way no true story and I said to mum yeah I think I want to be a nurse and my aunt is a nurse said great idea and then I said wait up who's in charge of the nurses and my mum who gave the wrong answer because just want to put it on the record the doctors are not in charge of nurses and she said no but the doctors are and I said oh well, god I need to be in charge <laughs> so I need to be a doctor but then all through school all I wanted to do was medicine I think it was a combination of well Ambition, it's, it was the hardest degree to get into. You had to have the best score at high school. Um, it was biology, science, physiology, um, but also mostly it's problem solving. You come to me with your problem, whether your problem is pain or an amputated leg or a chronic disease, and my job is to work out what, what's the cause of your problem and then how do I fix it. I think that particularly like differential diagnosis, abdominal pain, doctors are, and diagnosticians are constantly starting to think already, this is a young woman, she's got abdominal pain, you start taking a history. That for me is the best part of medicine. And you also, in my mo- most recent job at, um, at the Epworth Hospital when I was working in health check and breast cancer, your job is to help a person feel as relaxed and close to you as possible that they can be free to tell you everything. 
you know, so they can say, actually, yes, I do drink a bottle of wine a night. And I can say, okay, that's not ideal. Let's work out some ways that you can try and reduce that because your risk of breast cancer increases by X percent every time you do that. Rather than going, no, I don't drink too much. And then no one's really helping anyone because they're in denial and I'm pretending everything's fine. What am I helping there? Nothing. So I... My objective with all of my patients is I want you to trust. I want them to trust me. I want them to tell me how their life is tracking, so I could provide them with the best support. You are listening to Lucy Zellich in conversation with Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. It's interesting to me because you go from medicine to then also between the years of 2000 and 2006, you were a rower, then an Ironwoman athlete and finished the Ironwoman Hawaii World Championships in 2006. But then it wasn't until your mid 30s that you decided to switch to cycling. What then was it about cycling that attracted you to that sport? Well, the fashion, of course. (laughs) Skin suits. Suits that are so tight that you can only wear them when you're bending over. You can't even stand up properly because the zip is really short. Um, I think with cycling, particularly the time trial, so I was part of a time trial talent transfer program and it it felt like it was everything that I was good at and it tried to – and it removed a lot of the stuff I wasn't good at. So it was all about – well, physical strength and endurance, but pacing, being smart, being organised, doing specific training that supported it, um, having a medium and long-term goal, knowing the days of your races so you could like plan out what road races will I do that will help me be better at time trialling. So, and also it was a service industry being a time trialist. You're the domestique for someone better than you. It's, I don't know, I'd love to be good enough to be a GC rider, but trust me, it's actually a lot less pressure to just ride on the front like Tim de Klerk or, you know, someone in service of a person you think, she can win this, she's going to climb faster than anyone else or she's going to sprint faster than anyone else. I did that in, in 2009, I had a total breakthrough season and one of the things that was the best for me was riding as the domestique. I won this time trial in China and then I rode as domestique for Chloe Hosking, who's gone on to be an absolute super sprinter, Commonwealth Games gold medalist, world championship representative. She was 19 and a total brat. She was insanely talented. If you could just have her be in that front 20 with a kilometre to go, she would win. She's smarter, braver, more aggressive, meaner than any 19-year-old I'd ever met. So I just rode my ass off at the front on these terrible roads, terrible weather, 150 women. And for me, that's easy. Like physically, it's hard. But if you believe in someone or something and you see it being implemented and then she comes and thanks you and gives you a hug at the end, like that is the best team environment that you can try to replicate in any sector. It doesn't matter if it's sport or business or anything. Of course, the flip side is that you can you can ride your ass off. You don't win. The team leader hates you and you get screamed at on the race radio. So your your part of that doesn't always work and the result doesn't always come. So that helped me then focus. It took me a while but and I rode with a lot of pro guys when I was living in Italy who were long-term pros. They gave me the advice that, you know, you just got to focus on a performance. You actually can't control the outcome. You can't control if she does win the sprint or she wins the KOM or the mountaintop stage. But you can control what you do and you need to come off the bike at the end of the day as you're getting changed in the car park. And you can think to yourself, well, I did my best. I did everything I could. We didn't win today, but we all did what we could. And that sounds very Pollyanna. Some days I was able to do that. A lot of the days I wasn't, though. I was disappointed, you know, treated like crap or there was a lack of gratitude. So it's a hard job being a pro bike rider. In 2016, you became the first Australian woman to make an attempt on the UCI world record in 15 years, and you broke the national record, the Masters record, and set a new record at the Adelaide Superdome. What was that moment like for you? Oh, it was such a relief. Like, it felt like a total vindication of my self-belief after all those years of trying to be great, trying to be the best in the world at something. Did you feel done then? Oh, totally. I mean, I just felt like um, I've proven myself right. Not that I was trying to prove other people wrong, but I just want to say, yes, you believed in yourself for all of the right reasons. And what do you know? Here I am in front of family, friends, live streamed all over the world. And it also was just such another validation of the fact that for that one day, I was the GC rider and all of these wonderful people, including people who gave me equipment and time and science and support, those people were my domestiques and I was the one on the velodrome, but I couldn't have done it without all those 
you know, dozens of people. And so that's a beautiful moment. I don't know what it feels like to win a gold medal at the Olympics, but there are so many, so few opportunities to be there where you think everything's perfect. And, and not in a toxic way about perfection, but like nothing could have gone better. I mean, it was it literally took seconds afterwards for people to say to me, you look too comfortable, you probably should have ridden more metres. Or, yeah, why didn't you go wow. faster? Shouldn't you have chosen a, a bigger gear? And you say, thank you so much for your helpful feedback from the, the bleachers. Uh, as a dude who's never attempted the hour record, <laughs> I'll take that on board, Gary. Um, not his real name. Um, but I think that so... What's What I guess I've encountered as well, because it was a wonderful moment, is broadly I think Western culture of Australia, uh, you know, Western Australian approach is risk aversion. To quit a job and seek another career or change your life, people are really good at saying, oh, you probably won't be able to do that, that's too hard, it's all a big no. And then at the end there's people like, oh, well, why didn't you do more, could have done this. So that famous quote, you know, success has many parents and failure is an orphan. I went from having being an orphan to suddenly having a lot of parents who needed to own that result. That's okay. I owned it. So did the people around me. And I just felt so happy, so relieved with myself and the people who believed in me. Who tried to own that result? Was it people on your team? Oh, former coaches, former selectors who said I was too old, too fat, too slow, that I'd never be any good at anything, you know. I mean, I think that um, now with some space and distance, I realise how hard it is to be a head coach or a selector. Like that is a brutal job and you're not getting paid enough. But trust me, you, you could actually be nicer to people. You could be more clear and kind with your communication. You don't just need to see it as some list that you just got to cross people off so you can take three women to the Olympics. So I think every athlete's experienced brutal rejection. It doesn't need to be dismissive of your entire character and it doesn't need to be um, bullying and uh, you know abusive which I've seen in other circumstances as well so um, one particular co- former coach the one who I'd approached to help me do the hour world record back you know in the January so just 12 months earlier I'd come second at nationals to Shara Gillow who extraordinary athlete and Olympian she was a three-time national time trial champion I had come second at the age of 41. I was so angry. I thought, ah, what a loser, second place. Like I had a full-time job and everything. But I was thinking, I'm never going to be in better form in my whole life. And that's when I made the decision to to make an attempt on the hour world record. And I went to my coach and said, this is what I'm thinking. I've never ridden a track bike. I'm 41. Uh, I think I want to do it. And he said, oh, I don't know. Like, that's going to be really hard. I don't know. You know, it's going to be too hard, too expensive, too... And for the first time in my life, instead of listening to him, I thought, okay, you're not the guy for me then. You're not the person. If you don't think, if your response isn't, let's Mm -hmm. do it, then, but see, when I was 21 or 31, and this is what I think, I can't speak for young men, but too often um, I had in my 20s and 30s, want to please people. I want them to love me and I want to please them. Now where I am, I'm old and mean and ugly and single, I can say, oh, I'm sorry, you don't believe in me. I'm going to go do it anyway. I'm just going to find the right people. And that's your effing problem that you don't believe in. Yeah. You can mm. coach people who you feel you've you've kind of aligned the pathway for them and you have you can see that it's going to be easy, but far out. Coaching isn't easy. Like no job worth doing is easy. But if imagine if someone, I, the boyfriend I had at the time who was just terrific, he, was a, he is a rowing coach, he said, if someone like you had come to me and said, I've identified this audacious goal and I've got a plan on how to get there, he said, I would go, yeah, let's do it. So it also shows you that a lot of coaches and even a lot of generally in people in power are actually not feeling open-minded. They've got a really closed mindset. They just go, hey, Lucy, just give me the talent and I'll help manifest it into greatness. But actually, the bigger problem is give me the talent who's a part-time, who's a mum and she works part-time and she's 40 or here, give me this guy who's got a disability and I've never coached people with disability before but they're hungry, they're motivated, they're really, really persistent and they're disciplined. I would pick the latter every time. And I think that we need to see that more in our coaches across every sport, professional and amateur, is we need people who care about human beings and improvement, not turning 99% into 100 because most of us could do that. Mm, It's very true, actually, and I liked your story about the fictional Gary because my favourite saying in sport and in life in general too is everyone's a coach after the game. 
and it came from an NFL coach actually who was under fire at the time and you know everyone was telling him about you know the success that he wasn't getting and what he needed to do but then he said but if anyone was to stand in my shoes would they do any differently and that's the thing right but the the pressure that these coaches are under too and I think it's it speaks to how much they've impacted athletes lives over the years as well because you know the term coach killer um, it can go both ways can't it because you can ruin a, an athlete's life and a potentially an athlete can ruin a coach's life so it's it's really such a high pressure cooker situation when it comes to cycling though and and what I've since discovered since I've been speaking to people speaking to yourself and, and those within the industry is that it's an industry that's really backwards and learning about your stories of abuse etc particularly what it's like to be a female cyclist in particular it's really harrowing why are they so backwards Bridie? I guess um, part of it is the European heritage. So if we think about the way um, particularly the French, Italian, Dutch, um, Belgian um, cycling has developed, it's been a battle, a test and a battle of the fittest. And also there's been this enormous pool. So if you've got tens of thousands of boys aged 15 to 20 that all want to win the Tour de France, well, you don't have to be a really great human being. You can just pluck down the best people, throw them into an environment, um, subject them all to thousands of kilometres a week with a lack of science. I mean, this is what would have been happening in the 70s, 80s and 90s is just train your asses off. Much of it was um, amplified by performance-enhancing drugs. And then if you're alive at the end, you're the winner. So it it wasn't a scientific approach. It was all about volume and all about the most kind of kilometres. And they trained hard. And we've heard, read Alan Piper's book, you know, ride to a race, do a 150k kermess, ride home you know, constantly wondering if you're going to get paid or have food. So I think it had a lot to do with a huge pool of talent and and a hunger from all of those young men that were doing it and the young women that started in the 70s, 80s and 90s as well. A lack of governance. You know, there's a lot to be made by owning a cycling team or having your sponsor across a jersey. And that's how, obviously, the Tour de France started as a sponsorship endeavour by a newspaper that... There isn't this overarching, and I know it sounds annoying, people talk about governance and a framework to support good behaviour, but it actually, that's what it was. You just had this sort of rogue element of let's throw a whole lot of guys in there and tantalisingly dangle some money or, you know, have preems in sprints where you could win a ham or some money. You've really got this captive audience and that beautiful film, the animated film, The Triplets of Belleville, you know, really depicted that Tour de France cyclist as this kind of hungry, exhausted machine. And we've heard other cyclists when they write write about it, like in the Daniel Coyle book, Lance Armstrong's War, he describes how these athletes are like children. They don't want to do any junk miles. They want to lie down when they're not racing, you know, or training. So it didn't cultivate an environment of professionalism until sports scientists started getting into it. Now, of course, as sports scientists got into it, it was also often linked then to really enhanced uh, doping programs. So we heard Michele Ferrari and that kind of program, which... I mean, it must be amazing to be doping an athlete and providing him with a training program because you're seeing these results and it's like scientifically fascinating. It's just completely lacking in any ethics. <laughs> so I think that it's a combination of that. And now what we're seeing is a greater degree of scrutiny on how athletes are treated, what their contracts are like, um, whether they're getting paid or not, what the deals are. We've seen speculation last season about, you know, sponsors that pull out of a team literally weeks before Worlds and there were riders in the women's, in one of the women's teams that were days before World Champs without a team. So they couldn't start. That sort of thing is now becoming, thankfully, more rare. Um, we've we even witnessed, of course, on SBS um, during the Tour de France a real change in uh, management of head injuries. You know, Bardet crashed and people thrust him back on his bike. And two days later, when Hagida crashed, the Colombian, everyone went, hang on a second, we actually need to do this properly. So I do think cycling as a sport is catching up. I think it suffers from its own politics the way every sport does, which is some people own races, some people own teams, some riders are powerful, most riders aren't. So that's not anything unique to cycling. I also just think that we have to remember there's this whole element of physics involved So drafting means, of course, that 150 people can move as a very large beast very differently from how football players play. Um, You don't have a timeout. You can't come off the race and sit on a bench for a while. So the athlete themselves has to be so elite, so hardy, so willing to keep showing up with their body strapped up after a crash or, you know, that it does actually create a very hard 
determined personality type across the women's and men's pelotons, that is pretty remarkable. But it often makes you not that great at a lot of other things because you're devoting dozens of hours a week to it. So then you retire. And then if I'm to generalize, particularly about a lot of the men, then what do I do now? Do I own a bike shop, become a coach, develop a drinking or drug problem and drive my Corvette into a pole? Do I get divorced from my first wife because suddenly I'm around all the time and she realizes I'm actually super boring or not winning anymore? Do I go from being ridiculously underweight to now being overweight and then hate myself? You know, these are some of the problems that pro cyclists face when they retire and that's crap for them. It must be really hard. Or you move back to your small Australian regional town after living in Monaco. You know, so the juxtaposition of what life was like as a big deal to now not knowing what's next. Not everyone is Robbie McEwen and they transition into a life of, you know, pretending to be a pro surfer. And so, you know, he owns a business, he commentates, he has a grand fondo. That's wonderful for him. But those riders that go on to a career after winning three jerseys at the Tour de France, that's a pretty unique sidestep or transition he's made. And you hear more about Jan Ulrich driving his car into a pole than we do about the success stories. I don't know that there are a lot of success stories. That's a really scary thing for me. I mean, I grew up with two professional athletes. My partner is a professional athlete. I just don't know that it will ever be enough once you leave the sport. So when you look back on your achievements, does it feel like it's enough? I mean, we spoke about regret earlier. You don't want to end up being someone that regrets anything in life. But are there things that still bother you that you wish you could have done or that you still want to do? Oh, look, I would love to have gone to the Olympics, but I also think that for road cycling, the Olympics is not the most beautiful pinnacle race that that the World Championships is. It has fewer um, participants. It's only three riders. It's pretty difficult to do a team race when you have three or four women from one country. Um, I think, um, yeah, I'd love to be the best in the world, love to have a rainbow jersey, be a world champion. Um, you'd also, but then there's all these other caveats. Oh, I want to win, but also want to be racing the next year so I can keep showing up. You don't want to, I mean, people win and then they're injured or, you know, they're Dave McKenzie and they win nationals and then nationals get held till two months later. He didn't even get a chance to wear his jersey for a very long time. So luck is everything and timing. And I think the older you get as well, the more you realise a shit ton of things can go wrong, even when all those things happen. And to go back to the mental health impacts on athletes, one of the best shows I saw around that was that Insight program on SBS when they had uh, the diver, Matthew Mitchum, they had Liesl Jones, they Barry Hall and Lauren Jackson. I recommend anyone watch that show because those four athletes between them have achieved more than anyone in Australia ever will. They achieved everything I would ever want to. And at that time, and they, they communicated this, I'm not speaking for them, they had been depressed, drug addicted, anxious and disappointed themselves. And if there's any upside to those four athletes telling that story is that we can all, as civilians who have never been as great as that, say to ourselves, ah, so the gold medal or the perfect 10 or the Olympics five times or the best basketballer in the country, it doesn't make you happy. The happiness comes from here and here and family and love and a body that works and stable financial situation, like all the boring stuff that doesn't sound cool or sexy, that is actual intrinsic happiness. So that made me feel relieved because I thought, you know what, actually the searching, the endless seeking is not the thing. Mm. It's the being in now and going, wow, how lucky am I? How lucky am I that I get all of these things? And okay, there's these shit things. What can I do about them? If nothing, I'm going to try to move on to tomorrow. What are your thoughts on social media? Because I know that you use it as a platform to be very vocal about particular issues. I loved what you had to say about the Tokyo Olympics chief um, when he came out and said women talk too much. But your response was even better because you came out and you actually came out with facts from Stanford University where you said, no, actually, statistically, women don't talk as much. And this is just an example of blah, blah, blah. So what what do you think about it and the way that it's kind of affecting us? I think it's ultimately more positive than it is negative. I think it provides people with access and humanity and to help them feel less isolated. And that's the purpose it served for me when I started on Twitter when I was living in Italy. It was a way to communicate in English and be humorous and be connected to people when I lived in Italy and my Italian was limited. 
And so I still think it is generally positive and I know I have to moderate my engagement with it and I have to not engage with people who are abusive and trolls and threaten to kill me. I block them, I don't, you know, and I report them and I have a pretty strict policy about that. And then since I've been working in government, I'm just much more careful and, and try and be more considered about the comments I make because I am employed by state government and I firstly don't want to be a jerk, but secondly, don't want to say things that aren't appropriate. But last year when I supported Black Lives Matter as a, as a cause and my sister took her kids, my nieces, to the protest in Brisbane, people sent me abusive, horrible, threatening messages about that. And I thought, see, this is where Twitter particularly can just be insane. Like, and, and that was instigated by, um, you know, uh, members of parliament here and a journalist in, in Sydney. And then I was on TV on Sky News with Peter Credlin calling me a boffin. I thought, okay, you're all, you're all idiots. But also some people just need something to provide a vehicle for them to be mad or outraged. So, you know, you just you step back and you stay away and you be around the good people in your life that you love. Um, but I do think that ultimately it can be a really important, powerful tool for connection, for information, for advocacy and to elevate issues. I mean, Me Too as a movement would not have happened without social media. This whole last week and a half, which I know many people have been disturbed by in allegations around behaviour um, towards young women in Parliament House, has been absolutely triggering for a lot of people. But we wouldn't know about it unless social media was able to bring us those stories and that really good journalists continue to ask those questions of elected members of parliament and other people. So that's hard to read, but it also means we're getting, we're getting access to a different part of the world that we would might always be closed off in the past. And I'll tell you what else I love about social media is seeing Fromage Fridays. <gasps> on Friday, a Donald's oh, look, I just want to say, on, if you could, if you I could did only invent Fromage Friday. If you could only eat one cheese for the rest of your life, what would it be? Daffinoir. Second would be uh, Gorgonzola Dolce, and then third would be Manchego. They're my all-time top three podium cheeses. And, in fact, (laughs) SBS gave us the most beautiful and clever cheese board after the Tour de France that is this beautiful circle, and it slides open like one of those pencil cases you had back in the 90s, if you were a kid then, 80s even. And inside are three little beautiful knives. It's like the best present I ever got. Um, I'd been using Fromage Friday during lockdown and then we had it trending during um, during the Tour de France coverage and people were posting pictures of their beautiful cheeses but also their their cheddar, you know, their yep. their slices of cheese. Um, it was such a lovely thing to be doing because Matt and I were commentating here in Melbourne. Robbie was in Sydney with Mike Tomolaris. It was it was a bit of a challenging dynamic, but I'd never done the Tour de France before, so I was just did so you love pumped. it? Did oh, you love totally. the tour? I mean, you were the first woman in SBS's history to cover the Tour de France as a commentator, which is just huge. How did you like being in the commentary box? Oh, I loved it, but I also feel completely relaxed. I can talk about cycling forever, and to work with the experts that we have on across the podcast, the show, the the anchoring, and then the live commentary is a privilege. I mean, it was exhausting and crazy to be on France time while we were all living in, in Australia. But it was the most amazing, cool, fascinating experience. I think we got into it better too. Like we were really good halfway through second week and by the third week. I also think it was gripping, you know, that penultimate time trial stage, watching Bogacha, watching Port climb into third. It was a fascinating race as well. So all of those things combined for me to make it a total career highlight. I'll tell you, you are exceptional at so many things. We're delighted to have you as part of our commentary team. We're delighted to have you as an activist, as someone that's pursuing gender equality and diversity in this space and affecting so many people's lives and also affecting great change. Bridie O'Donnell, you are a superstar. Thank you for stopping by Thanks to so speak much, to Lucy. SBS. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.